Our second reading is from the book of John, chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. The word of the Lord. Morning again. It's probably a little better with the speak microphone on. Let's pray. Dear God, we do lift up uh, those brave children as they head off to be together and the brave teachers. We do pray that those kids would never know a day apart from you, whatever they face. <clears throat> we pray particularly, actually this morning, I've been thinking a lot this week about our high school students, many of whom are seniors who have applied for college and are living in that tension of waiting and uh, expectation and hope and probably some anxiety. We pray for them today, that you give peace to them and their parents as they experience that together. We pray for others, Lord, who may be hurting or in need as they arrive this morning. Um, we don't just bring ourselves to you, we bring one another to you, and so we ask you to uh, speak to us and guide us and teach us as we gather together. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Well, again, I'm Dean Miller, and uh, delighted to be here, delighted to be on staff at this church. And I want to ask a question. Um, how many of you, at the beginning of 2024, has had somebody, either social media, a friend, a magazine, a newspaper article, something on your social media feed, that has suggested a way you could be healthier in 2024? You could do something. Can I see that hand? Right? Everybody. Right? So lots of suggestions the last couple of weeks. I've been getting peppered, I feel like. Um, either direct pings or plenty of articles that are sort of passive in the newspapers I read and stuff like that. And of course, they run the gamut, right? From like physical fitness to food. Gut health is certainly real popular. Uh, you know, cold plunges, skin care, finances. What type of car is the best car to get right now? And they're targeted to who you are, right? Like, can we do it again? Everybody raise a hand that's had some sort of suggestion. How you can Just stick your hand up and look around the room. You'll see pretty much it's age apparent, everybody, right? So whether you're a teen, a man, woman, young adult, senior citizen, parent, college student, there's some way you and I could all be healthier in this year. And those are actually usually great things, right? They're encouragements. They're probably lots of truth in most of them. Um, and they're targeted to who you are, right? This is who you are. This is how you can be healthier. You're not going to get retirement news if you're a 12-year-old, typically, right? But it begs that question, what is the healthiest, best life you and I can live? And we have been looking for a long time, really since the fall, as what it looks 
likes to be the best and healthiest church? What are the, the encouragements from God's word in the Bible on how we are to look as a church? We spent all fall looking at what the New Testament taught us about what it means to be God's people. And then this winter, we're taking six weeks to revisit the particular uh, core values and, and commitments we make as Christ Church Vienna. What's it look like for this church in this place in this time in church history to be a part of the global church and to be healthy and to glorify God? And many of you have probably heard, and I hope you've picked up the card, which I forgot to pick up myself as I came up this morning, the sort of three-by-five-ish card that has our six core values sort of unpacked. Maybe you can say them with me. Christ Church Vienna is a gospel-driven, externally-focused, extended-family Anglican mission for Vienna, Virginia. And we're spending six weeks at looking each of those things. It's a good time because this is the church season of Epiphany, when we particularly celebrate God's commitment to love and pursue the whole world. And he does that through his people in his churches. And so it's a lovely time in the church calendar for us to revisit. Oh, what's it mean for us to be a part of that mission of God? Last week, Johnny kicked us off by looking at what it means to be gospel-driven. That's always a great place to start. This is who we are. This is what it means to be a Christian, which is what we want to be first before you're part of this particular church of Christians. The gospel reminds us that we begin with who God is and his pursuit and love of us. You'll hear it in our prayers at the end of service during communion. When Richard Crocker leads us to communion, you and I were in need and God sent his only son Jesus to save us. John 3.16, which many of us know, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel in some. And that forms and shapes who we are as a people. It's the cornerstone of our life as a church. This week, we're starting the first of two weeks looking at what does it mean to be externally focused. We're gonna look this morning on what it means to be externally focused on the least, and then Johnny's gonna talk next week about what it means to be externally focused on the lost. So if you have a Bible and wanna open up to one of the two passages you heard read, we're gonna look at both of them actually this morning, Exodus 22 or John 5. Exodus 22 uh, roots us in, in pretend you're Israel just out of Egypt. Many of you probably remember that Exodus 19 and 20, Israel's arrived at Mount Sinai and they're being giving the, given the Ten Commandments. Just a few weeks ago, you and I were slaves in Egypt. And now we have marched across the sands of the ancient Near Eastern world and arrived at Mount Sinai. And we still don't really know what's going on and who we are. This is a whole new thing. God gives us the Ten Commandments under the scope of you are my new people. This is your moral law. This is what it looks like to live as Israel. This is the moral outline of who you're to be. And then the next few chapters, chapters 21 and 22, and it keeps going a little bit, are the social communal laws. And those laws are wide-ranging. If you went back and read chapters 21 and 22, you'd see there's some laws about robbery, or if there's a fire, you start a fire, or somebody, your neighbor starts a fire, what should we do? You have cattle and you lose them, or I lose your cattle, I borrow something, or you give me something to steward and I don't take a good job. What are the laws involved in all those sorts of things? Our eight verses, though, suddenly are a unique focus, something different on what it means to care for people on the margins. Again, you and I have been slaves. We don't have a national structure order. We don't really know what it means to be the nation of Israel. And God is outlining what it means for us to be the healthiest nation we can be. And in that nation, he's going to focus here on eight specific verses that tell us how to keep an eye on the people on the margins. 
those people are outlined again and again in the Old Testament, and usually the categories are the poor, the sick, widows and orphans, and aliens, aliens being people who live in Israel but don't own land. Israel is to be marked by God's heart for these people. God notices these people. He values these people. He wants to make sure that they are cared for and a part of his nation. And the way he does that, the way he cares for them, is to look at his nation, people, you and me, and say, hey, guess what? Part of your job as Israel is to make sure the poor and the sick and the widows and the orphans and the aliens are cared for. He's inviting us in to be like him. This is who I am, who I love. I want you to be like me. I want you to love them as well. So from the beginning, Israel's not just to be focused on themselves. It'd be tempting, right? You're threatened. You're, you've just left Egypt. You're trying to figure out who you are. It'd be tempting just to circle up and huddle up and be like, we are Israel. We're just going to hunker down. That's our job. Be God's people. But they're not supposed to do that. They're also to focus on the people outside. Yes, be tight. Yes, be a kingdom of priests. We've talked about that this fall. Be a family. We're going to talk about that more in a couple weeks. But keep an external focus as well. If you keep reading through your Old Testament, especially in the prophets, you'll see that the consistent charge the prophets bring against Israel hundreds of years after this Mount Sinai experience is that they're not taking care of the poor and the sick and the widows and the aliens and the orphans. And it's a sign that they're not worshiping God. They're failing as God's people because they're failing in that direct charge. If you move from the Old Testament to our New Testament passage, John 5, you get an up-close look at the application of God's heart. This same God sends that same love through the embodiment of Jesus into Israel. Here's Jesus having an encounter with someone who is one of those marginalized people. The Gospel of John highlights seven different signs, seven distinct signs that show Jesus is the Messiah. Things that we knew in the Old Testament were showing this person who does these things, those signs, is the Messiah. And this sign, this experience we have here is the third sign John highlights. Can anybody, just a little trivia, Bible trivia, remember what the first sign of the Messiah was in John? Say again, Mary. The wine in Cana. Ever been to an Anglican wedding? Ever been to a wedding Johnny Christina has done? You have heard about the first sign, the wedding at Cana and the wine being turned into wine, or water into wine. That's the first sign. A couple chapters on, here we have the third sign in John. This experience of Jesus is unique because he is seeking out somebody sick. If you went back and read the Gospel of Mark, you would see him healing people. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9 in Mark. Jesus is healing people, but those are all people who go to Jesus and ask for healing. In this chapter, Jesus goes to this area in Jerusalem. It's a place we know archaeologically was really there. It's a place where people gathered hoping to be made well. Jesus goes to that place and picks out this one man. We believe this pool was about the size of a football field. So go out when we're done. If you want, walk across the parking lot to Vienna's football field. That big and about 20 feet deep. So probably about twice as deep as most of the neighborhood swimming pools that many of us belong to. This pool is a place people would gather in the hopes that God would visit the water and they could get in the water and be healed, that the water would do something if you're physically in need. And this man, we read, has been seeking healing for 38 years. 38 years. 
He's desperate, right? Think about something you have done for 38 years in the hope that you would be different. That's utter desperation. He knows that at the pool, not only is he, is he, he paralyzed, he's sick, so he's 38 years he's been longing for healing. For years and years he's been going to this pool. But he knows even if the, the angel comes, if the Holy Spirit comes and touches the water, he probably can't get to the water because he really isn't able to get himself physically into the pool. But he's so desperate, he's like, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to go back today. I'm going to be present. Maybe it'll happen today. Maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Maybe it'll happen next week. Maybe next month. Jesus enters this scene. He goes up to the man, and he heals him. It's not the pool. It's not the water. It's the Messiah who heals him. Again, we don't have time this morning, but there's a whole layer throughout these early chapters of John where John is showing Jesus is greater than water experiences. So, for instance, Jesus is the fulfillment, the biggest fulfillment of the baptism of John the Baptist. But if you went back, you can see there's one, actually, every chapter, these first few chapters of John. And here it is again. It's not the pool that's the healer. It's Jesus, the Messiah, who's the healer. Two different passages, Old Testament and New Testament, very distinct in the Bible, but with some very similar themes on this idea. What does it mean for us to be God's people who are externally focused? And I want to highlight five different things about what we can learn about being gospel-driven, externally focused people from these two passages. First thing, we need to start and remember with the gospel that we are the least. You and I still are the least, even as we enter into this sort of experience. You and I always start with the gospel and the good news. You and I are chosen by Jesus. He sees you. He pursues you. Israel, again, must have been easy for them to remember because they were just slaves, now being told to look out for aliens and slaves. In the gospels, we have to be reminded again and again, you and I are in need, that poverty of spirit Jesus invites us to remember. As Johnny said last week, we start in the gospel and we stay through the rest of our lives in the gospel. It is amazing news that you and I are chosen. And it's amazing use that he was going to use you and me to, to express that sort of choosing to other people. But you don't need to fear. God's love will never leave you. When you feel like you're the least, you don't need to run away from that. You can turn to God and say, I know this is who I am. And that sort of turning develops the gratitude in our hearts that then informs and focuses our own external look and view on other people. This passage, John 5, could be a particularly personal text for some of us this morning because many of you might look at that man and think, that's me. I have been desperate for this many years for Jesus to bring healing to me in this area. I am that person who feels paralyzed. I have done this thing that I thought would help me and bring healing, and it hasn't yet. I feel like I'm unnoticed or unimportant. I'm crippled and hopeless. Your identity might be shaped by that same sort of sickness and pain you see in this man. And as I was reading through several different commentators this week, I was so struck by one, this man, and I'm going to use a long quote here in a second, by a guy named J.A. Motyer. Because the easy thing to do here, not easy in terms of living it out, but the easy thing is to look at how Jesus loves other people. But you'll read in this quote, this two-slide quote, how Motyer starts here first in the gospel and says, wait, many of us, still feel and empathize with this man. Here is the quote. We are not told what brought Jesus to the pool, nor even more tantalizingly what drew him to this one invalid out of the many present. What is particularly noble about the man is that his need was a long-standing one. Here we confront another category of problem, the long, 
lingering need which reaches back across many years and may even cast a malignant shadow over the entire landscape of our past. In a quite basic sense, we all suffer to some degree from the hurt and errors of yesterday. In some people's experience, however, the shadow is particularly dark and overwhelming. Like this man by the pool, they lie emotionally and relationally paralyzed. From this perspective, Jesus' question, do you want to get well, is a penetrating one. A cure has its implications, particularly when the need is so long-standing that a whole way of life has been built up around it. The gospel returns us to our need and to reminding us you and I are still the least. Jesus pursued us and drew us to himself. And maybe for some of you, you think, boy, the thought of being externally focused, I'm so weighed down by this thing in my past. I can most relate this morning to the guy by the pool. If that's you this morning, I would encourage you to get prayer during communion. I would encourage you that God wants newness for you. And like this man, you can have the opportunity to go and tell your story about what Jesus has done in your life. I love this phrase, a cure has its implications. Jesus has implications for you and me as we come to him. You don't have to be stuck. That's the good news of the gospel. Second then, after we start with the gospel and who we are, living this way, externally focused, is founded in God and really is the healthiest way to live. Can we agree, most of us are Christians in this room, and we, uh, can we agree that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the healthiest entity in the universe? That if you know God and you know Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you say, well, that is probably the healthiest entity, relationship, grid, paradigm that we could ever know to learn from. And if you study the Trinity, you see that it is two different things. First, it is a focused family inward drawing unit, and then it is an externally focused outward drawing set of relationships. Inwardly focused and outwardly focused. An inward family and an externally focused family. Can you see why these values are part of Christchurch Vienna's list? God the Father is not just focused on himself. Jesus the Son is not just focused on himself. The Holy Spirit is not just focused on himself. Rather, they are focused together on one another and being outward over and over again. If you look and start to gather stories, you realize there's all kinds of social science which has studied this truth, this healthiest way to live throughout the world. Maybe uh, even though they can't source it, they don't source it to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of them, back in the 80s, many of you who are in business might remember a book called In Search of Excellence. It was written about the best companies that McKinsey Consultings could identify, and they, they looked at the best companies in America and around the world, and they sourced eight different principles that all guided these companies. And one of those principles was called good companies have simultaneously loose and tight properties. Simultaneously loose and tight properties. They were tight and organized and inward-focused, but they're also loose and ability to adapt and outward focus. Super interesting. Wonder where that truth came from. Think about how you breathe physically. In a second, I'm going to ask you to take a deep breath and hold it. Okay, ready? One, two, three. Just hold it. I'm going to keep talking. I'd like you to keep holding it. You've just inwardly drawn breath. If you were to only do that and keep holding that breath, you'd pass out. At some point physically, you're going to have to release that breath outward, right? You can go ahead and do that when you're ready, when you need to. 
The best way to breathe physically is to go internally and externally. If you went to the doctor and said, I can only take breaths in, that'd be a problem. If you went to the doctor and said, I can only push breaths out, you wouldn't make it to the doctor because you'd be hyperventilating and probably have passed out by now. Physically, inward and outward. Inward and outward. If you begin to note the ways that truth is in the world, you will be astounded. This is founded in the Trinity, the healthiest way we can live. And our Father and His Son and the Holy Spirit are always inward and outwardly focused. Third, one aspect then of God's external focus is to make sure you and I notice and respond to the least. Again, these Old Testament categories, the alien, the widows, the orphan, the poor. We might add categories now, people who are on the margins, people who are forgotten, people who are vulnerable, people who are treated like they are not important. This week, we celebrate tomorrow Martin Luther King. And then on Friday, there have uh, this whole next weekend, there's a whole set of things around the March for Life and really celebrating the, and protecting the unborn. Martin Luther King brought to our attention and really our conviction as a country how we were treating people like they were the least when they were as valued by God as anybody else. What's it mean to be a Christian and to be a church that's externally focused means to give those people the proper attention and value they deserve. People who would otherwise be disadvantaged now as they come into contact with the church are to be advantaged or to be like God, demonstrating heaven's values. To be in relationship with you means a person on the margins, like some of the categories we've listed, should feel advantaged. Think about that. Do people who come in contact with you leave feeling like, I was advantaged because I have a relationship with you? When, when I was with InterVarsity, one of the things we did a lot was play Ultimate Frisbee. One of the reasons is because it's an easy game, whether you're athletic or not. And I was visiting another chapter once where I'd done some teaching and we were playing after the teaching and a, a freshman was playing that I'd gotten to know a little bit, watched him play and he was doing some great things. It was clear this um, particular young man was not necessarily socially that gifted and he probably also wasn't athletically that gifted, but he'd done some really nice things during the game. And when we took a break, I said to him, let's call him Bob. I said, Bob, well, you played really well today. You played great. He said, yeah, I know. He, uh, when, when I play with, with this group, I always play better. And I thought, oh, I bet. I wonder if you figured out why that's true. It's because in that setting, he is advantaged as a person. In a normal college setting, he'd be a little socially awkward, probably not have as many friends, probably not invited to do athletic things. But in that setting, he's not disadvantaged. He's being advantaged by the kingdom of heaven. That's what you and I are to be like and to do. Do people sense God's advantage because they have a relationship with you? It's the Old Testament. It's the New Testament. You can see it over and over again as Peter and Paul stress it down through the centuries. Are people advantaged because of us? And you might want to think about who are the people in your normal social settings that would be the, the disadvantaged folks? It might be, again, people who are socially awkward. It might be, again, people who are new. Maybe you're in school. You're here as a student. Think about the kids who are more socially awkward or who are new to school, or who are from another country. What would it mean to advantage those people this week? Maybe, again, people at, your, at work or your, on your street. 
What's it look like for us to live the healthiest way we can like God to be and be externally focused? Fourth, because God loves us, that's the gospel, he reminds us that we too, we're the least as a help to motivate our external focus. What I mean by that long sentence is this line from Exodus and throughout the Old Testament Jesus, that God says to Israel, you too were aliens and strangers. You too were slaves. We're reminded that we are the least because God loves us and draws us to himself. And then it builds compassion and empathy and sends us out to represent a new way in the world. I give care to aliens and sojourners because, oh, that's right, I was an alien and sojourner. I too was lonely. I too was racked by guilt. I too moved to Northern Virginia and didn't know anybody. I too might be from another country. I, I too might live here and not have enough money. I, too, maybe applied to college and didn't know where to go. I, too, might have been selfish and self-absorbed. I might be a widow or a widower or an orphan. I, too, was in need, and so I'm motivated to go demonstrate God's love to people in that same kind of need. Oh, that's right. I was the least, and God chose me. I should express that love to them. I was talking to a friend of mine this week about the number of people who are college students that we know who are coming to this area or about to graduate and come and who are looking for jobs and are learning sort of the, the muscle of persistence and perseverance and reaching out and being vulnerable. Like, who do I talk to? How do I send a resume? What do I say? And that feeling that like, I must be crazy. I must be so annoying. Whoever's receiving this must think I'm a nut. And this guy said, you know what's great about D.C. is everybody looking for an internship or that first job out of college, everybody else here was like that too. So the people are ready. Again, for those of you about to go to high school and college, this is, this is a, a prophetic word. In four, five, six, two, one year, look around the room. All these people were that way too, and we're all, we would all be happy for you to say, help me find a job. But that's what this guy was saying. The 60-year-old, the 50-year-old who's done really well, they were the 22-year-old who needed a job too, and they remember. I remember what it was like. And that is what God is saying to Israel. You too were slaves in Egypt. You were aliens. Don't forget, because that'll motivate and build the empathy you need to care for aliens in your midst. One commentator had the best way to describe this way, that the people who are the least become the most. That's part of the kingdom of heaven. That's the math of the kingdom. You and I are the least become the most for Jesus. He calls this ironic contrast. That's you and me. This is part of the gospel's power, right? The least become the most. The unexpected are what God flowers from, and we see it throughout the Bible. You see few loaves and few fish feed 5,000. This small boy with a slingshot, whose name is? See, wait, let's try it again. This small boy with a slingshot, so famous, look how many people knew him. Takes down this big giant who should kill him. Named, right? Jesus tells stories over and over again about mustard seeds and yeast and light. You don't hear Jesus tell stories about elephants and 20-foot evergreen trees. Big things. He tells about small things that look like the least. What are the towns from the early chapters we just heard in the narratives of Jesus' birth? Bethlehem and Nazareth, little towns. Nobody gave a, a thought to those towns. It's not Jerusalem, Constantinople, Alexandria, Rome. The gospel comes from those places. The gospel comes from you and me, the least. Ironic contrast. This is the dictionary of biblical imagery when you look at least and small. 
In many cases, the Bible uses small as an opposite to great. The image of smallness has powerful uses within a cluster of meanings. Despised, relatively powerless, marginalized. All these usages are ironic, as in the biblical perspective, the subject, the least or the small, you or me, the alien, the stranger, in fact has great significance. You have great significance. Do you know that? Anybody here in the last 60 days felt like the least, like you just didn't have it to bring? Could you stick that hand up again, particularly for younger people? See how many older people feel that way? What this says is in Jesus, you have great significance. You are ironic contrast. You should get up tomorrow, look in the mirror and go, dang, look at me. I am the ironic contrast of Jesus being sent into the world. I will love me some aliens and strangers because that's what I was. And Jesus will go with me and help me do it. People will be advantaged because I am going to Madison High School or I'm getting on the metro to work downtown or I'm working from my home office or I'm taking care of my family in all kinds of ways in a minivan driving all over town. That's what it means to be the gospel and externally focused. You're the ironic contrast for the world. And you go with confidence. I, you know, sometimes you get illustrations late as you work on a sermon. This is, you're going to need to look this one up. I've been laughing for about 10 days. There's an old Nike ad. If you look up Blake Griffin and Dr. Drain. Blake Griffin and Dr. Drain. It's about uh, the basketball player, Blake Griffin, who was an amazing dunker before he hurt his knees and did all these ads. And one of them I'd never seen until a couple weeks ago. And it's this they're a pickup game, and this high school kid walks out with these huge glasses. It's clear this kid is not athletically gifted. And they're choosing sides, and he's super overconfident. There's no way this kid should be this confident. He calls himself Dr. Drain, because he's gonna drain threes. And what he does in this game is shoot crazy shots like this and like this that don't go anywhere near the net except Blake Griffin grabs him and dunks all of them. And so Dr. Drain makes these shots, and he's walking around like he's making it, and it's just Blake Griffin grabbing his ball and stuffing it. And you and I are Dr. Drain, and Jesus is Blake Griffin. <laughs> and please, please go watch that. You will, I, that's the best thing of the whole sermon is to go watch that video. You'll be so glad. It's the ironic contrast. Dr. Drain is ironic contrast. You would look at that guy and go, no way. But for Jesus, that's who you are. Fifth and last, just a, a clear, you already know this, but a reminder, it will cost you and I to be outwardly focused. If, if you go befriend the awkward person who's so frustrating in meetings at work, it might cost you socially a bit. Or if you do that in high school, you, you, you seek out the awkward kid. But it also will cost you, if we do it right, with our time and our money and our energy. We give as a church. It's one of our goals, right? Give 20% out. It's a cost. It's a great cost. It's the healthiest cost, right? But still a cost. But it's who we're called to be. It's who God is. I promise you it's the healthiest way to live. One last story. One of the great joys and gifts of my life was being able to take seminary classes with a man named, I'm going to start crying, J.I. Packer, who's one of the Anglican greats. And I had the privilege of sitting in lots of classes with Dr. Packer, but one of my top three memories is uh, an audio class I took on Anglican theology and history. 
And Dr. Packer is telling the story of the plague in England of the 1660s. And during that time, at that point, there had been renewal in different parts of England outside the Anglican church. And so you get non-conforming pastors. People are not Anglican, not recognized by the church. So they often lose jobs and income. And Dr. Packer began to tell how when the plague hit London and people began to leave, a lot of those pastors, so externally focused, the doctor drains of England were the ones who went into downtown England to serve the people dying from the plague. And Dr. Packer begins to cry in the lecture. Because that's what it looks like to be the kingdom. It costs us. It's the best. It's the healthiest. And it's for Jesus. But it is amazing. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you as always that you uh, pursued us. And I thank you for the astounding value of the men and women in this room. Uh, for the, the joy that I find when I'm with them. For the gifts you've given them. Lord, we together lift up anybody who feels uh, stuck and desperate like the paralyzed man. We pray especially that they would leave feeling lighter, that they are noticed by you. We pray too, Lord, that we would be a community that advantages other people this week. Even just the next seven days, Lord, use your words and our time together to remind people throughout this week as they see folks who might need to be advantaged and cared for. May we. You give life. You are love.